night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is spiritual midwife Anna Gatman, Ph.D., and author of Living a Spiritual Life in a Material World, Four Keys to Fulfillment and Balance. According to a Pew Research Center survey, 80% of millennials believe in God but identify as being spiritual but not religious, indicating a clear need for establishing a balance between our spiritual longings and our material needs. Dr. Anna Gatman demystifies the all-too-elusive nature of spirituality and brings it down to earth, providing a concrete roadmap to living a life that is spiritually fulfilling without having to give up material pleasures. She's a former fashion model and founder of an alternative elementary school, has a doctoral degree in transformative learning from the California Institute for Integral Studies. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Anna. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, we're talking about spirituality t- today, and I do want to have you tell us or talk to us about what the difference is between spirituality and re- religio- religion, I guess, spiritual and religious beliefs. But first, I guess, before we do that, is 21st century spirituality different than it was, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago? Hmm. That would be, I mean, I'll be honest and say that 20 or 30 years ago, I was young and I wasn't into spirituality. That was something that you did, you know, that was something for, it felt like that was a religious thing. And so um, I think today people allow themselves to have their personal practice, their personal beliefs, whereas before, so maybe 30 years ago or before that, you had to adhere much more to an institution and, and a set of beliefs and way of living, which we call a religion, right? And so maybe yeah. that's the shift that's slowly, slowly going, uh, happening towards an individualized um, spirituality. Okay, so this is much more personal. It's not having, as you say, be, attaching yourself to some kind of group, which I think it did maybe in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. This is very different. Right. It's a very personal kind of spirituality. Okay, so given that, what's the difference between being a spiritual person and a religious person? So spirituality is your subjective experience of the sacred and the divine in you and in everything around you. And religion is adhering to a set of values and beliefs that everybody shares and everybody practices. And so within religion, you are supposed to, that's the aim of it, but it doesn't always happen, which is why millennials are are kind of moving away from it. But you're supposed to be able to have spiritual experiences because that's the purpose of it. But they often have become so stuck in um, following the rules and the values and the ways of living that they miss the direct unmediated experience of God or spirit or source, which we all feel, all secular people feel when you look at an oak tree or when you see a baby smile uh, or when you engage in work that you love and you come alive. There's so many ways of, of feeling alive and feeling spirit without having to adhere to a set of rules. Do you have to so believe in God in order to be a spiritual person, to look at that tree and have a sense of, of, of awe, of wonder, or meaning, or do you have to also believe in a higher power if, you're, if you consider yourself a spiritual person? No, you know, I, I went to, 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 um, 
to um, an academic conference, and the most surprising thing on, on, on spirituality, and the most surprising thing is how many uh, uh, atheists there were in the conference. And, and at first I thought, what are you doing here? And they are really arguing for we are spiritual. We have spiritual experiences. We just don't believe that there is a God. So um, you don't need to believe in God in order to be in the presence of an oak tree and feel peace and grandeur and beauty or be engaged in work that, feel, that, that makes you come alive and feel that there's a purpose and you're doing good in the world. You don't need to feel that there's a God for that. I think one of the things, and maybe this relates to my first question, it used to be sort of maybe, uh, you know, the connotation maybe of spirituality was kind of like a, a touchy-feely thing, giving up your material mm-hmm. possessions. You know, you had to be at one with the, with, with the earth and the universe. And, yes, not that that's a bad thing, but, like, your particular, especially in your book, uh, has so what you talk about in terms of spirituality is also, like I said in the beginning, you can – you can also combine that with your acceptance of a material world as well. You can combine the two. They're not kind of antithetical to each other, um, which I think people today are really interested in. So uh, talk to us about that, spirit, being spiritual and also living in this material world and being able to balance both. Yeah, well, that was my biggest realization because when I went on a spiritual journey in my 40s, I I picked up the belief that in order to be truly spiritual, I need to give up the material and live a very humble life without any material desires. But I'd been a fashion model in my 20s, and I had lived a very gratifying material life, and I had lived in Paris and had learned to appreciate the beauty of art and of clothes and of food and and, and of nature. And so there I was struggling between these two parts, feeling I'm not spiritual enough. And, and I said, it's crazy, because every piece of art is an expression of a higher intention of somebody's spirit. Every meal that you eat that feels like divine food is an expression of a chef who's dedicated their life and their creativity and their hard work um, into the dish in order to express themselves, that's their calling, and in order to awaken my palate and my spirit. So how can we separate spirit and matter. We live in a body. If I go in a retreat and I experience inner peace, how do I know I'm experiencing inner peace? Because I have a body and I have a mind and I'm experiencing it in this lifetime in my body. So I realized they're not separate. This is what's driving everybody crazy and not allowing the mainstream to join spirituality because they feel they need to give up their entire material lifestyle in order to be spiritual. How does sensuality fit into that? Because you're talking about you were a former model good food, uh, you know, art, and I assume <clears throat> music, theater, all those kinds of things. So you can be a, one can be a sensual person as well as a spiritual person. That ties together as well. You know, if everything are gifts from God, if you believe in God, or nature, the evolution of, of nature, if you believe in that, then sensuality is part of that. And why wouldn't we enjoy it? It's when you indulge, when you think this is going to bring me happiness. But if you see the hidden uh, spiritual aspect of a delicious meal or you see the spirit of the artist in, a, in, in shoes that you buy or you see the ingenuity in a smartphone where, where you can talk to friends around the world and send pictures to your family, when you see the, the, the spiritual qualities behind the material world and enjoy it sensually, then you're really 
blending the two and appreciating the material world. So you have, I mean, very specific, um, as we said, four keys that are going to help us to attain or to, you know, to engage in that spiritual world, So, uh, which you can find in the book, in your book. But let's talk about those four keys. What do we do? How, you know, what, how can we achieve, I guess, this, you know, this, this spirituality and, and being able to incorporate, incorporate that into our everyday life, everything that we do, our choices? Right. And so, so the four keys really allow you to travel from the spiritual to the material, um, to tap into a larger spiritual reality, but then to express it in very material, physical, daily living. So that's how the four keys work. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a simple practice, but obviously because it's muscles that we haven't used, it's a practice that you kind of need to practice a bit, but it's very simple and, and it's attainable with some practice. And so the first key no, is And before you do presence. that, because you yes. said something yes. that we need to do, I guess maybe we, why do we need to do this? Because we seem to be, I think, perhaps maybe we should discuss this a little bit as well before we get into the yeah. four keys, because what's happening in our world? It doesn't seem that we are too balanced. Are we in this materialistic world that's just, you know, gone crazy, you know, and we yeah. don't, yeah. So, and that's not good for us. It's not good for our cult. It's just not a good thing, either physically, mentally. Um, so that's why we need to, as you say, get into a more balanced way of living, which would involve spirituality. Yeah. Well, well, we do have an innate need to lead, to lead meaningful, purposeful lives. We have an innate need to express ourselves in whatever talents and gifts we have and interests that we have. But we have an innate need to express ourselves, and we do have an innate need to make a difference in the world. If it's a big difference for a for a large number of people or just for the people who are close to us, our family, our workers, we have that innate need. And so when we don't satisfy that and just go for material things without seeing the spiritual aspect of them or really addressing what our needs and values and aspirations are, then we feel empty inside because we just acquire things and they don't satisfy that thing that we're longing for. And that's where people go, okay, so then I should not be material and I should only be spiritual. And it doesn't work that way. We live in a body. We live on this planet. It is a material world. And what we need to do is elevate our material existence by bringing in our values and qualities. You know, if, if we do want to lead a more peaceful life, let's bring peacefulness into daily living and not only just to a retreat on the weekend. That's okay. But bring it into your daily life and your, into your interactions with your spouse, with your children, the way you talk to your colleagues. So, but it is an innate need that we all have to express ourselves and to feel meaningful and fulfilled. All right, so bringing this peacefulness into our lives, I think you explained that really well. Now let's go how we actually do it with these four keys. What do we do? How can we do this? How can we achieve this? Right. Yeah, so, so, so the four keys come out of, of, of my doctoral research. And so um, what I, I, I found out through my research is that all luminaries live in this expansive state of presence. They, 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 they have this expansive state where they're connected to something larger. We've all had experiences and maybe most uh, easily in 
nature, but we might have had them in other times where we feel that we belong to something larger, that the boundaries of our body are a bit more fluid. We have more loving thoughts about ourselves and about the world, more compassionate thoughts. And, and, and so that's an expansive state. And in the book, I go into details of, of how accessible it is. But, you know, through practice of gratitude and breath and authentic expression, there are different ways that you can enter this expansive state. And that's the other thing I found in my research. You don't need to be a luminary who lives in a, in a monastery in order to do that. These are accessible ways that we can do while we're driving down the highway in our car. So the first key, though, is then expansive presence, and it's the key. Like, give us an example, a a real-life example, I guess, um, you know, of, of, okay, driving in our car, we can uh, improve upon uh, our awareness of ourself and our world. But let's take an example, perhaps, in everyday somebody who is really out of balance, you know, a real example of that and how they can get themselves together. Obviously, so there's extreme cases if you're drinking too much or drugs too much or, you know, you, you uh, have addictions. But what about just most of us? Give us an example, like, who are just um, overdoing it, working 80 hours a week sure. instead of 40 hours a week. Okay. So ask the simple question. What is something a feeling or a quality that you would identify as spiritual? Most people can say inner peace or joy or compassion, people will say something like that. So, so pick one. So let's pick compassion, okay? So now you left your office, you're driving down the highway. Can you focus on compassion while you're driving? Just focus and say, I feel compassionate. What do I see that is compassion around me? So you think in, you know, the highway there isn't much. Well, if you start looking at the world from compassion, first of all, your heart opens, you enter this expansive state, and you start seeing, well, everybody's sitting here, everybody's trying to make a living, everybody's trying to find their calling. Everybody on, on the highway is doing all of that. They're all trying to, to, to bring bread to the table of their family. Suddenly your compassion even grows, but you begin to see the highway and the traffic from a compassionate way. And here I am also trying to make a living and trying to do good in the world and trying to do my best. So you see how in a seemingly very material situation, you suddenly, just focusing on compassion, suddenly you see the traffic and the people you see them as people and not cars that are stopping you from getting home faster. Does it make sense? That makes, yes, it does make sense. And I, I, I did. I had that experience sitting in a train station the other day and I'm trying to figure out, am I going to, you know, am I going to be late? Is this train going to be late? And I'm looking around at the people and figuring out how I can rush in front of everybody. But I had that experience that you're describing and I suddenly looked around and I thought, you know, all these people have to get somewhere. Everyone's struggling to, to, you know, take care of their families or get to their work. And I had a whole different feeling about the situation. So I think that's a great example. I, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. You see, now, you just think maybe that you had a thought, you know, but the fact is that your heart opened, right? You were more tolerant. You were more compassionate. You were understanding of yourself and of others. This is a spiritual moment. You don't need to go all the way to India and study with a guru to yeah. be spiritual. You can sit in the subway, right? right? And have this moment of awakening and going, wow, we're all struggling. We're all here. I'm going to be more tolerant and more compassionate. And that's what happened to you. Yeah. 
And I think it also, and you can feel it if one allows yourself to feel it, you can actually feel that chemical change in your body sort of relaxing. You know, you feel, yeah. you can feel the muscles relaxing. You can feel whatever the, the chemical is that's positive as opposed to the one that's not positive. Uh, you, you know, in, in five or ten minutes, you, you really feel the difference, I think, in your, in your physical body. Yeah, completely. Completely. It really is a shift of your mind, of your emotional state, and of your physical state. You can feel different sensations. And so 10 minutes is not a long time, and we're all sitting on the subway or the highway or, you know, or waiting for our kids while they're, they're at the gym playing and you're a mom that, that, that's sitting in the car. I mean, we, we, we have time for 5 or 10 minutes or while you're cooking. We're always thinking of other things while we're cooking. So we could do this while we're cooking. You see, it doesn't have to be something that you go to temple or church or have to go to a, to a retreat. I want spirituality to be something you can do while you're doing something else. Yeah. You don't have to figure out which organization that you're going to add to your list. Not that this it's not a good thing. It is a good thing to, to volunteer for something so that you can be compassionate yeah. or show your compassion or so that everybody else can see it. That's another piece to it. They don't necessarily have to see it um, because if you feel that way, then you're going to, respond to everybody in your family or your friends in a compassionate way. Um, I think that being part of a community, a religious community, is a beautiful thing. It gives you love and connection. And and if that helps you, we should all find a gateway to source or spirit or this place of love, compassion, joy. And if you do it through church or through Jesus or through God or through Moses or Buddhism, whatever works for you, do it. So there isn't a right way and a bad way. I, I don't want to speak bad about religious institutions and only value individual spirituality. There are different gateways. Rumi the poet said there, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And we each need to find our way and be tolerant of other people's way. Yeah. And given that, the next one, which I, find, which I really like also, is another way of doing this, this attentive listening you talk about in the book. What, what is that? So what I discovered in my research is that the minute you expand your consciousness and are in a more kind of loving and understanding and tolerant state of mind, heart, and being, you become aware of information that wasn't available for you only a second ago when you were in a more constricted state of mind. And it's not rational information. It's intuitive information that starts appearing. Like suddenly you understand things. I mean, just as you had in your situation, you, you had to get to the trade and, and suddenly you understood people in a different way. So you go, well, they're all struggling. They're all trying. So what happens when we are in this expanded state, all we need to do is just not work hard, not try to figure it out. Just, you know, kind of sit back and listen to the universe, start giving us understanding about a specific situation that we're focusing on. And suddenly intuitive guidance shows up either as a gut feeling. It's, it's embedded in our language, a gut feeling, an inner knowing, intuitive hunch, or it shows up in an external sign in synchronistic events and people. Suddenly a book shows up in your life that's just what you needed to hear or you see, you know, you're watching the news and they say a sentence even just and you go, that's just what I needed to hear. And that happens once you expand your consciousness and if I can say, this is what happens to luminaries. They spend more time in this expansive state, so they get a better understanding, an intuitive understanding about 
the world and how people are. And then they write books about it or they give sermons and we go, they're so wise. And they are because they've spent time in this expansive state and you and I can do it too. So if we're then given that, so if we are tuned into our inner wisdom, what you're saying is that we'll be more connected. Like if we're talking to a friend or we're in some social situation instead of not really hearing what that person has to say, we'll hear it and then we'll be able to react to it. Is, is that what you're saying? That we, if, or watching we'll a show on TV? hear it from a different yeah. place. I mean, your example is so good. You saw the same situation from a different perspective. That's what happened to you. And that's what happened. So you sit with a friend and you go, she's talking, I'm talking, you know, she says, I'll respond. And suddenly you do a moment of just breath, right? You kind of consciously breathe, open your heart and suddenly you listen. It's like, let me listen to what she's really trying to say. And suddenly you hear, well, she has a need to be heard. It's really important for her that, you know, that her spouse listened to her and he's not doing it. How can I support her? Suddenly you hear something different from the same situation. That's attentive listening. And so then the another example of that. Yeah, yeah, I think because I think that one is well, they're all important, but I mean the four keys. But I think I, I, that attentive listening, because I think today so many of us don't do that. I mean, we have you know we talk about multitasking. Um, not yeah. only are we doing tasks actually physically, but in our minds. I mean, I find myself sometimes thinking so much about the, so many things that I have to do or should be done <laughs> that I can't remember what the first two were, and I'm working <laughs> on the second and third. It's it's. And it's, yeah. it's sort of crazy thinking. It's not uh, tuning into my inner wisdom. It's like, the, you know, yeah. it's the opposite. So in a sense, you're not present with yourself or with the other people. And people feel it. People feel like they're not being heard. They're not being seen. And it creates a restlessness. It creates a restlessness in our children because they're just a to-do list. You know, get them to school, do homework, go to basketball. They're not human beings who are trying to explore the world and be curious about it. So people feel it and it creates a lot of restlessness and unease and a feeling like, when will I be able to be seen, to be heard? I, and I think many of us, I'll say, I think, have had this experience, but how many times have you been talking to a friend uh, on the phone and, and then you realize they are also on their computer doing something else? It, right. And you, you, you can feel that. I mean, all you, you don't have to see them. You don't have to be in the same room, but you can feel that. And that's sort of a real... Right. That's, that, yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. And, and, and we've all done that. I mean, I've done that. Yeah. We all do it. We yeah. all do it. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so we need, to, uh, we need to talk about inspired action. So Yes, so that's really the yeah. key to manifesting. And really, so, so if you've expanded your consciousness... You've listened attentively, and some information comes through in, in a holistic, intuitive way, either internally or through some external um, manifestation. And now your duty is to act upon it with inspiration. So still keep this expansive presence that you're in, but you want to act in the world upon this wisdom. Because when you do that, you're more aligned with what you're supposed to do in your big life calling but also in right now, the right thing to do at the right time, the right place, you want to do that and not just sit in a meditative state and gain insight. You actually want to act in an inspired way. And that's when you manifest and that's when you feel I'm doing something in the world and it's making a difference. And it's amazing the miracles that show up in your life 
once you start to practice the four keys and go from this expansiveness to listen more deeply, you get some intuitive hunch and then act upon it. The world aligns, better things happen to you. It's, it's remarkable how it works. So how has it worked in your life? Give us the best example of, let's say, you, you know, have become, as you describe it, a conduit for something greater, that you really act on all of this, cause, and you don't just get stuck sort of sitting there having accomplished the first two keys, but then when you have to really do something, you don't do it. Um, so what right. have you done? Yeah, what would you say was probably something that would be a great example of how you were able to, um, to be a conduit for something greater? So, so uh, you know, so it happens throughout my day, but I'll give you a bigger example, and that's the writing of, of this book, right? So here I arrived in America without a work permit with my spouse five and a half years ago. My spouse had a, a work permit and I didn't, and I had just completed my doctoral studies, and I knew that I wanted to write a book, a more popular book about my findings and my research. And so, you know, I was sitting on the sofa in my living room, not knowing anybody here and writing my book. And then slowly, I asked for someone to guide me because I thought to myself, I can't do this on my own. Who's going to help me? I need someone. Suddenly, I receive an innocent email from a friend of mine. He said, look, there's this person who is an expert of to teach. He teaches authors and experts how to um, advertise and market their book. I thought, there is somebody who does that? Wow. I immediately went on his website. I signed up, okay? I did his course for two years. So that was something just showed up in my space, and I could have said, oh, it's another course. They're charging me. I thought, this is just what I had been asking for. After that, I I just kept listening, and I ended up, look, five and a half years ago, I've got endorsements of my book from Jack Canfield, I mean, what's my connection to, to Jack Harrisfield? I mean, I, I just went from one prompt to the other, to the other, to the other, and suddenly I'm here. I've got a published book. I've, I've, I've um, brought out into the world a message that I think is important that has really helped me. And I'm saying it just because anyone can do something as big as writing a book or anything else that happens throughout my day. But... But this is a good example of having sitting privately in my house, not knowing how I will get my message out and how anybody will want to listen to it. And here I am today talking to you, right? Yeah. Right, it's exactly. A small well, that's a great, yeah, that is a, that, that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Well, I mean, we don't have time to do the fourth key, so people are going to have to buy the book to find out what that is, and there's also a lot more exercises and examples in your book, obviously. So, but, so um, I want to m- mention the title of the book again, and you can buy it at Amazon, uh, bookstores every- on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. The title of the book is Living a Spiritual Life in a Material World, Four Keys to Fulfillment and Balance. And the author is Anna Gatman, Ph.D. Um, Anna, also, is there a website that we can go to that, because yes. I know you've written other books, so we, you know, it's not only yes. this book, but others there that you've a, written. Yeah. There, is a web, there, there, there is a website where you can go and download a free download uh, of how to find more peace and prosperity uh, and purpose in your life, and then you'll be on my mailing list, and we can communicate personally. And the website is anagatman.com, so A-N-N-A-G-A-T-M-O-N.com. Great. Great having you on the show today. Thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you so much, Catherine. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is licensed clinical psychologist Rachel, Rachel Hershenberg, Ph.D., uh, author of Activating Happiness, A Jumpstart Guide to Overcoming Low Motivation, Depression, or Just Feeling Stuck. The small decisions we make every day can make the biggest impact on our emotional well-being and long-term mental health. Emory University Assistant Professor Rachel Hershenberg brings the study of depression, low motivation, and how to treat it into the hands of everyday consumers who are looking to kickstart their own behavioral changes or just want a guide to use in conjunction with their therapy. Dr. Hershenberg, an award-winning clinical researcher as well, is featured in Goodreads, NBC News, and Psychology Today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Rachel. Hi. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. I think the key word is activating happiness. How do we activate our happiness? Everybody wants to be happy, but we don't really know quite how to do it. So you're here. You're going to tell us how to do it. (laughs) Yes. In 30 minutes, everybody will know the magic recipe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we'll start with that, right? Uh, But it's a jump start. I like that word, jump start. Let's get going. How can we be happy? You know, and and I think what you say, low-level motivation, depression, feeling stuck, that's most of the stuff that 
most, uh, I guess most of us have to deal with every day. We just can't get going. I mean, we kind of go about our daily lives. We get things done. We make it work, but we're not really happy. Um, <clears throat> and we want to change, but we don't quite know how to do it. So. Let's, exactly. And thinking, right. Thinking about change can feel really overwhelming. And a lot of us go about our days to some degree on autopilot um, and then maybe end up the day worrying in bed at night, thinking about all that we still have to do or feeling overwhelmed or beating ourselves up over the head for what we should have done differently. That's the big one. You know, why did I eat that? Oh, I, I, why didn't I get myself to the gym? I'll, I'm going to go tomorrow. Or that's the other one. We make the promises to ourselves. I ate really poorly tonight, but I'm going to do better tomorrow and then we fall into you know that same pattern again and again and so there's a real ubiquity in that experience and that was one of the drivers of writing this book is just understanding that there is nothing wrong with you as a human being if you procrastinate on your goals and if you struggle to you know to execute what you want to do it's validly hard for everybody and as Especially so if you've been feeling depressed, um, but generally speaking, it's it's universally hard, and and that was the heart of, of where the book came from. Right. So procrastination, yeah, you, you obviously you cover that in the book. That's one of the big issues that we have. Why do we procrastinate? I mean, I think one of the things you say is, and I, I know I'm guilty of this. One, I procrastinate because I think I have to do some big, as you describe it, sweeping gesture to get this myself going, and you don't really need to do that, do you? You there, you can. You don't have to do some huge thing in order to sort of jumpstart yourself. You do it in smaller ways. So how do we do that? Right. So I think there's two important pieces. One, I love what you're getting at, which is that a lot of us do. We, we kind of... You, we set a, the idealized version um, or we're jumping to the end product. You see exactly, you know, what, what you want the, it to look like when, when it's done. And so that can feel very overwhelming just to start and to take a step forward because you feel, oh, God, I don't have energy to do all of that. Um, so that really compounds this general feeling of wouldn't it just be nice to not do it now? <laughs> um, and so one is just thinking about how to actually break it down and take one step, take any step closer to what you want to see, you know, get done rather than taking a step away, which would be completely, you know, putting it off for later. That's one really important piece of it and kind of subsumed in what I'm talking about. And this is the step that I think that people don't always talk about in the conversation of procrastination, which is really understanding that it's an emotional decision, right? So when you imagine that thing on your to-do list, you start to feel a little overwhelmed or, you know, maybe a little anxious. Maybe your heart starts to increase a little bit. Maybe your breath gets a little more shallow and overwhelming to some extent. You just, it doesn't feel good, right? And um, the moment when you say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow, if you pay attention, you feel a little relief. You know, maybe you take, right? You just kind of have a sigh of relief. That's an emotional process that goes on, which means that your decision-making can sometimes um, be pretty impulsive. And so helping to understand that emotional process can help you intervene a little bit differently. I put that in a context. I, I always tell, you know, when I'm talking about these kinds of things, like, what, what, how to apply it to a specific situation that, either that you've had with one of your patients or clients or, or yourself. How Absolutely. does it work? I always come back to the classic example of laying 
in bed. Oh, well, mm, well, never. I was going to say, well, well, actually, this does work because even thinking about procrastinating on your bedtime, because going to bed when you need to go to bed is so critical because it helps you wake up and have the energy, you know, to face your day. And a lot of folks have taken to the habit of, you know, say, streaming Netflix in their bedrooms and have taken to the idea of... <laughs> have you been that, spying on me? <laughs> 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 right? And, you know, and then that episode ends and it starts counting down and if you do nothing, continue watching just automatically happens, right? And so when you, when you actually start to break down that moment, you're faced with a quick decision, you know? On the one hand, you're thinking, thinking, I have this bedtime, I will feel better if I go to bed right now. Um, but when you think about going to sleep and that, you know, then morning's going to come even sooner, and then that means that you have to deal with all the things on your to-do list, that's where a little bit of that dread starts to kick up. You just feel a little overwhelmed. Um, and there's probably a desire just to, you know, stay blissed out a little bit longer. And so that's that moment that we want to help to break down, um, to understand how not to automatically just sink in and kick in for another 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Good example. All right, so there are other ways, too, that you have. You have all these very solid strategies in the book that you can, that we, you know, will help us. Very I, it, easy to follow, I guess. Um, you talk about the guilt and shame. I mean, because those are, that's a little bit different. Like, one is really, you, you feel guilty or let's even and shame about what you're not doing or why you're not doing it or why you can't do it. Um, what would be examples of those and how would you overcome it? Um, well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind just bringing up guilt and shame here is, is it's tied into what I was saying earlier, which is the universality of this struggle. You know, I think really one of the most important messages I want to consistently communicate is that to be, if you are a human being, you are going to struggle with, you know, how to choose and navigate a moment effectively. Um, we have countless opportunities, but countless challenges throughout a day, you know, do I eat that extra cookie or do I, you know, resist that compelling urge? Do I, you know, yell at my partner when I feel really frustrated or do I take a deep breath and revisit the conversation 20 minutes later when I've calmed down? Uh, You know, do I check my email because it just pinged or do I keep, you know, uh, actually getting out that report that I have to write for another 10 minutes? Um, So we're faced with them continually, which can feel a little overwhelming. And so the point about guilt and shame is that, you know, we are our own worst critics and we can really feel bad about ourselves for the choices that we've been making when we see that they don't serve us well. And so when you actually learn that, you know what? This is pretty universal. I'm not the only one. That's an important piece of it is saying, just drop the rope and beating yourself up. But yeah, there are some things you can learn, some tools that might help you navigate those moments a little bit differently. But let's drop the rope on beating yourself up for it because that only makes you more likely to feel consistently down. And that makes it just harder, you know, to choose wisely the next time. We talk about self-care. That's self-care. And you say that should really be at the top of all your resolutions in terms of what you should do. And, and many or most of us, self-care is at the bottom of the list. We're caring for every other activity or person or particularly someone or parents or whoever or taking care of, of kids. 
um, don't seem to be able to do that, this putting yourself, understanding that self-care is so important. You mentioned getting a good night's sleep, for instance, I think a little bit earlier, but I mean, isn't that really does, let's discuss that, because in order to achieve all of what we've been talking about, you really have to engage in self-care, right? Absolutely. So there's the, you know, the why and the how. The why is that our decision-making processes are impaired when we're overly exhausted, when we are really hungry, (laughs) when uh, we're hungover, um, when we're feeling just really stressed out, you know, and, and like we haven't taken a deep breath in a while. You know, and if you think back, Um, on yourself and kind of do a little check-in, you're like, yeah, I do make pretty bad choices, you know, when I'm in one of those states. And so the best way to to navigate, you know, day-to-day life is to modify those physical variables so emotionally you can, you know, be a little bit more balanced and a little more poised to make decisions that are going to be in your best long-term interest. So that's, you know, the why of it. Um, And a really important piece of the how of it is, yeah, why is it on the bottom of so many people's lists? It's not because they don't agree with that, right? It's because it's so hard to fit it in. Logistically, there are limits to how many hours there are in a day. And so one of the... I don't know if you can call it a, a trick, but maybe it is, you know, that I really emphasize in the book is that the, the good news is that all of these areas are interrelated. And so rather than feel like you have to, you know, wave a magic wand and be this perfect person who, you know, changes your diet and gets exercise and gets sleep and, and limits, you know, alcohol and has time for relaxation, you can... Start to move in the right direction by picking one of those areas that you think is going to have a nice domino effect on the other. You call it a keystone habit. And the example that I like to give. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, you said keystone habit. A keystone. keystone habit, meaning if you just focus on that one habit area, it may naturally dovetail in the others. So if you, so let's go back to what we were talking about, procrastinating on your bedtime. Okay, let's just say um, you really just focus on when that first episode ends That is when you turn off the lights, and if you're still a little awake, maybe you practice breathing in bed, or you know, you just have a playlist of a few songs that'll naturally turn off, and you usually drift to sleep by by the second song. Okay, all you have to do is focus your energy on that one intentional behavioral choice. Well, that may naturally segue into being able to wake up when the alarm goes off and not hitting snooze. Maybe that means that in that extra 20 minutes, that's when you, you know, take your yoga mat out in your bedroom and you do just a little bit more movement and stretching than you would otherwise have time for. Maybe that's what naturally, you know, sets you up to, to craving a little bit of a, a healthier breakfast or, you know, feeling like you don't need that extra cup of coffee, right? And so maybe that means that you feel just a little bit more relaxed throughout the day and a little less keyed up when you, you know, walk through the door at the end of the day and so on. And that's all from focusing on that one goal of getting yourself to bed rather than feeling like you have to be, you know, intervening in five places at once. So that's the domino effect in a positive way. Absolutely. Yeah. Capitalization, what's that? Oh, I love capitalization. So, 
Uh, well, let's ask you a question. So when something good happens in your life, it could be big or small, you know, small things like you got yourself to the gym. And I don't mean small, unimportant. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a raise or something really huge happened, right? How about you, you lost two pounds? Right, right. So you're focusing on <laughs> weight loss and you, you get yeah. on the scale and you're feeling really jazzed. What is one of the first things you do? It, well, okay, wake up in the morning and I, it's the weekend and I've had a great weekend, but I wake up and I say, oh, I lost two pounds. What's the first thing that I do? I, I feel, I automatically feel really good about myself and I haven't really done anything, you're right, except lose those two pounds. So I will go out, I'll be with my partner and he and I will have a great cup of coffee and I'll feel much better which is very different than if I had gained two pounds. So I start off the morning in a very positive way. I might even um, you know, try on clothes, maybe wear something um, nicer than what I intended to, and then somebody will respond to that. Um, so I... It, it, that's, you're it, like, it, is that what you're getting at? Well, so those are all wonderful byproducts of what happens. And I wonder if you maybe celebrate the news with somebody else, whether it's your partner who knows that weight loss is important to you. You know, I wonder if you go and, and share that, that good event with anybody else because that is what capitalization is. It is. I see. No, I share that. Absolutely. That's the first thing when I speak to my girlfriend. <laughs> Yes. Guess what? I lost two pounds. And, yes, I do share that. Yes, and, and I will share it with him. And you share it with, with a girlfriend who you feel like gets why it's important to you, you know, or just kind of is excited and, and has a little bit of a conversation with you about it and, and why that mattered and, and, you know, what it means for you, what type of impact do you notice that that has on you? Well, I might be. Well, it might be encouraging for that girlfriend who's also been trying to lose weight to do something about it, and she might ask me how I did it, what I ate. Mm-hmm. We will have mm-hmm. a discussion about it. Um, that may be one of the results of that. Um, we might talk about. Well, now you can wear that dress you were planning to wear to the party uh, because it'll be more comfortable. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, all of the yeah. above, exactly. And, you know, there are so many neat things that happen when you have those conversations. But so one of them, um, well, you're more likely to remember that it happens, you know. So if many of us have really bad memories. Uh, and so let's just say a few days later, you know, maybe the scale goes, you know, a degree, or, you know, pound in the wrong direction. In the direction, other direction, yeah. Right? You're more likely to remember that you've had positive experiences that were consistent with your goals when you have those conversations. That can be really helpful and encouraging. Um, in general, it can keep you feeling motivated and, and continuing, continuing to feel like Accountable. You know, you want to keep working on this when you reflect on, wow, you know, this is meaningful for me. This is something that feels good. And the other thing is that you may actually feel closer with your girlfriend that you have the conversation with. Um, just in general, when we have conversations with people in our lives and we feel like they get us and they understand important pieces of us and what matters to us, that's kind of like the hallmark of intimacy. So it's, you know, just even extra bang for your buck in terms of feeling really close um, with people in your life while you work to keep engaging in your goals. Capitalization is not bragging either, is it? But, uh, you know, that was kind of, you know, not, a, I mean, that was a, a, an example, losing two pounds. But what about other things that perhaps are maybe a little bit more um, 
I'm going to say, important or have a bigger impact on your life. Let's, can we give an example of that and how capitalization would work? Well, I think that's a really great point, and that gets into some of the subtlety of it. So in the book, when I explain, you know, what the process is and how it looks, like part of capitalizing effectively is choosing the right people to share information with. So that's like, you know, even just think about the you know, when you get good news, like let's just say you've been trying really hard to get pregnant and you find out you're pregnant, the first person you're telling is not the person with fertility problems, right? And that, that sounds like an obvious in-your-face example, but absolutely, you know, you want to, you need to choose the person who can genuinely be excited about it and not threatened by that news. Um, and then you also want to choose a partner who can muster some excitement for you. You know, you don't want to tell that person that goes, that's nice, and then, you know, just kind of moves on. Or even more importantly, we all have the friends that say, oh, you did that? Let me tell you about me right away. And you go, what? Were you, were you listening? Oh, we're talking about you again? <laughs> so um, there's, there is an artistry to thinking, you know, with sophistication about who's the right person to tell this piece of information to. Is that the only thing we have to be aware of when we are practicing capitalization like it's really important who you tell the news to there is the who and then there is the when so you know um let's just say you know you have a romantic partner that really gets why you know the event is important to you and and generally speaking has the capacity to engage you in the conversation and you know and ask you questions that really you know help to solidify why it's meaningful for you but maybe they come home from a long day at work, they've got a lot of things on their mind, they're hungry, right? We talked about hunger being a driver of behavior, um, you know, or maybe they're stressed about a deadline. Telling them in that moment is not going to be the most effective either. So you could say, hey, guess what? I have good news. You know, um, when you finish your work, let me know and I can tell you about it then, right? Or just being sensitive to the timing. Um, there's usually an urgency on your behalf to, to celebrate, but you want to be aware of, the, you know, just the, the current state of, of the person you're going to talk to. I think timing, as you're describing it, is perhaps the most difficult um, to, because that's you know we want you know we sort of like to do things in our own time and what's convenient for us, and it may be more difficult to realize, as you say, it's not the best time to tell your partner if, if this person has been working, you know, twelve hours a day uh, to tell them your good news. Um, so, timing is something it would seem to me that we would have to probably work on the most. I don't know if that's been your experience with clients or. Um, that and for especially, you know, really specializing in depression, one of the hardest parts of the capitalization process with those patients is even just recognizing that something good has happened that you can celebrate with other people. So, you know, just a tendency to discount that, you know, it even happened, right? So that's, yeah, I lost two pounds, but I still have 10 more to lose, you know? <laughs> so being able to say, wait a minute, two pounds is really significant. You know, I, you can still have more goals and that doesn't have to be the end point. But wow, isn't that actually a step? So, you know, we run the gamut from recognizing that, you know, something different has happened, the different is positive, to, you know, then identifying who to tell and then when to tell. So um, there, it's definitely a sequence of steps. Um, so, yes, in some ways all of this stuff is easier said than done, but it can be so rewarding when you do. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's important that you mention it when you say easier said than done, because sometimes we discuss these kinds of things on the show, and people say, well, you make it sound, or they made it sound easy. Um, as a matter of fact, someone was, one of my listeners was saying, well, I listened, well this was a show on addiction, and it, it, it sounded like it was just a simple step. It sounded too easy, and it made her feel bad because it wasn't so easy for her and her family. So I'm glad you brought that up because it isn't that easy. I mean, you read your book, you have to practice it, you have to, it's not going to work right away necessarily. It really takes time. And, um, you know, most of us will say, well, I don't even have the time, but you do have the time. But I think that that's really critical. Um, It's not easy. It's it may not sound simple, easy, it's, and, yeah. and that, again, you know, goes back to this idea of the guilt and the shame that, that people carry when they feel like they try and it didn't work, or I tried once and I got it, but then the next time I didn't. That, again, it, that, there's a universality in that, and there's nothing wrong with you. These things are hard. That's why, I mean, how big is an industry of self-help books and helping people change? And, you know, as a clinical psychologist, there will always be patients walking through the door because this stuff is hard. The idea is to try to make the steps concrete and specific and and digestible. So, you know, but I think there's a big gap. Intellectually, people can get what to do, but putting it into practice isn't easy, and that is okay. And I guess the flip side of this being hard is that because – I always focus on these moment-to-moment choices because it's really, they're concrete. It's an actionable step that you can take. And let's just say you navigate one moment in a way that you feel like, oh, if I did a do-over, I clearly would have done it differently. Okay, but you know what? You can learn from that. That's not a data point that goes into the stratosphere of, oh, now I'm a failure. It's, okay, how do you learn from that? How do you build from that? And just try it out a little bit differently the next time. Great. We have literally a couple minutes left. Um, so I, you know, I want to obviously mention your book again because you can learn how to do all of this and take your time with it. Activating Happiness, a Jumpstart Guide to Overcoming Low Motivation, Depression, or Just Feeling Stuck. And we've been talking to Rachel Hershenberg, Ph.D. She's the author of the book. Uh, just a website, Rachel, we can go to for more information about you and the book. Uh, you can go to rachelhershenberg.com. Uh, if you're thinking, how on earth do you spell Hershenberg? It's H-E-R-S-H-E-N-B as in boy, E-R-G. Great. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. It's been great to be here. Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.